Why might indoor vertical farming be ideally suited for opportunity zones? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me on the show today is Zale Tappickman. Zale is president of Local Grown Salads, an indoor vertical farming company that is general partner in the Local Grown Salads Baltimore Opportunity Zone Fund. Zale joins us today from his office in Toronto. Zale, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today and welcome to the show. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you. I'm very excited to be chatting with you. Excited to be chatting with you as well. I've kind of been following what you've been doing with your Local Grown Salads Baltimore Opportunity Zone Fund for, I think, the better part of a year now. I, I remember you were one of the first Opportunity Zone funds. Maybe you don't even know this, but you were one of the first Opportunity Zone funds that I had included in my in my Opportunity Zone fund database at opportunitydb.com uh, way back when, when we were first starting out. So I've, I've had my eye on you for a little while now, and I was very pleased to meet you at the Opportunity Zone Expo in Miami back in November. So that was that was it was a pleasure to be talking with you then and and uh, now as well. Uh, so let's dive into vertical farming, Zale. Why vertical farming? Can you tell us some of the benefits to vertical farming versus traditional farming? Okay. So <clears throat> one of the more exciting things about indoor vertical farms is that you're actually producing the food right where the people are. Um depending on the day, uh, there's lots of different exciting things, but this is the one I'm thinking about today. So traditionally, um, California is the breadbasket of the United States. Most of the food and vegetables are produced in California, Arizona. It kind of goes along that a little bit in Texas, but but that's what happens. So as we see, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had the, the, the problem with the romaine lettuce and the failure of the romaine lettuce, and all of a sudden things don't happen. So, and it was in California that you didn't have the Romaine Alice. So, which means the people in New York City and Boswash, Washington, Boston, that whole area, and Chicago, Detroit don't have food. So, what you really see is the food is transport, being transported from California on trucks all the way to New York. So, that takes two, three, four days, depending on the solution. And then, if you go to the, the service centers, it can be five days from the time something is harvested until it shows up. On in the retailers or the restaurants, your McDonald's or Walmart, your Target, wherever you buy your food, uh, Whole Foods. So it takes it four or five days. So what happens with the vegetables, the second they're um, cut or harvested, um, they start to degrade and the quality degrades and you lose uh, the nutrients and everything else, which is a big problem. So the first thing that indoor vertical farms means is that we're producing them in the New York, Washington, Philadelphia, wherever we, we have the farm, it's right there. So an indoor vertical farm, you har- you harvest at seven to six o'clock in the morning, and it's dropped by the truck at the retailer by nine, and you're eating it for dinner at five, six, seven, whatever time you get home. Um, essentially, it's one day. The nutrients, the taste, everything is phenomenal from fresh foods. That's the first really cool thing. The second thing is that when we do indoor vertical farms, we entirely control the environment. Um, in California, they have to use pesticides, you have to use herbicides, fungicides, and, and indoor vertical farms, it's like a 
almost like a pill factory or a pharmaceutical facility in that we just have a clean environment. Well, that's great. Yeah, obviously, obviously a lot of advantages. Uh, are, are there any drawbacks to, to the locally grown indoor vertical farms? Um, it, uh, disadvantages, uh, just the cost, um, which is the capital cost of setting up a farm. Um, but our farms produce about 1.5 million pounds, and it takes about $2 million of capital cost to do that. And, of course, you need a building and all those other kinds of things. There, there are very little disadvantages. Uh, oh, the other advantage, the other disadvantage is you need power, which in America Northeast is fine because you have good power supplies there. But, for example, we're looking at putting farms in Puerto Rico, the giant opportunity zone. Um, power there becomes a little bit more interesting, and you have to look at alternative sources of power, which includes solar and other kinds of stuff. But power, power in those kind of places are a problem. But in in Northwest, the primary disadvantage, of course, is the capital cost of setting up the farm. Gotcha. So the, mainly, the the money is the is the main drawback or disadvantage, but all of the other advantages. Uh, may outweigh that if you can find a source of capital. I, I, and I want to dive into how the fund is structured and and how the farms work exactly a little bit later in the podcast. But first, I want to back up for just a minute here and get a little bit of background on you, Zale. Can you tell us briefly how you got to where you are today? And maybe you can also include when you first learned about Opportunity Zones and, and how you brought this fund together. Okay, so so I'm I'm I have grandchildren, you know, so that puts gives you a kind of context of my age. Um, but I worked in R. I've been working in R and D for the last ten, fifteen years, uh, working with companies that are high edge R and D companies. I was working with companies in the food space and restaurant companies, and we discovered that the the need for food and consistent food became a problem. And I was riding my bike around one day, and I was looking at the roofs of buildings, and I was saying, hey, why wouldn't it be great if we could grow food there? And when we started doing the actual financial math of it, it just didn't make sense if you did it horizontally. You know, imagine a farm on a roof. just doesn't make sense. You couldn't even pay, you know, $10 a square foot for the roof. But if you went up vertically and used every square foot, and you put more volume per square foot, and that's where we started from. So that's where we started from. I actually started in 2013 developing the technology. Our technology, we have a patent pending. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going. Um, it's leading edge technology. In the United States right now, there are some big competitors. One is Aero Farms up in Newark, plenty in California. And, but there's no real solid um, industry that's developed. It's all right, brand new industry, just rolling out slowly. Um, so I, we started looking at, okay, well, it's heading up in Canada. Canadians are so conservative. It's unbelievable that people are still using rotary phones here. Uh, cell phones are just too advanced for most Canadians. Anyway, so we decided, okay, United States is where the leading edge is. That's what people are doing. And then we started looking at doing these buildings and retrofitting these buildings. We develop our technology for older buildings. We could just go into an existing building. And then we were approached by somebody that said, hey, you know, have you heard about opportunity phone zones? And then we said, whoa, this is perfect for us. We get to buy buildings that are cheap, right? Because they're just basically old buildings in early 1900s, maybe some as early as 1900s, some as 1950s, 1970s. Buildings that really have no other use as factories, they're in the worst place. So we have a great story to tell about how we're helping the community, working with the community. And we just jumped on it. 
And, you know, as the rules have been rolled out, we've been modifying and creating our, our fund. You know, we structure, we, we say we talk about our fund, but we had to structure our fund and we had to put together partners. So, you know, we're working with BKD as our auditor, Circle Partners as their fund administrator, and putting all the pieces together. Um, and then realizing, you know, I'm an innovator, so I'm realizing that opportunity zones are a new innovation and they're going to make a lot of people a lot of money. And that's my personality and what I like to do. Excellent. Yeah, I want to talk in some detail about the structure of your fund and get into some of the technical details there a little bit later in the podcast. But first, let's let's talk about the farms now. I want to talk about the farms in, in some detail. What does one of these actually look like? If I walk in to one of your buildings and, and see this vertical indoor farm, can you paint a picture of what I would be looking at exactly? Okay. Okay. So first things, uh, when you walk in, we're going to gown you up and we're going to put you in, you know, you look like a biohazard type suit. Um, and we're doing that not because you're going to get sick, but we want to make sure that if you've got a cough or a cold or in any way um, are sick, that you don't spread your, your germs onto our food. And of course, in case you have a little insect on top of you or something on it, we need to make sure that you're perfectly clean. So you're going to walk in, you're going to be gowned, you're going to walk through a um, little bit of an air curtain. You know, when you walk into one of those stores and you see air blowing down on you and it keeps the outside hot and cool, separate, but it's another Another separation. Then you can walk in, and you, what you're essentially going to see is five grow rooms. Each grow room is a micro um, uh, micro environment um, because kale likes a cooler temperature than lettuce. Lettuce likes a cooler temperature than tomatoes, and tomatoes likes a cooler temperature than herbs. Because we can grow all of those, we can grow some 60 different vegetables, you know, including strawberries, peas, beans. So you can imagine, you know, the entire environment of all the climates of the world in this kind of one single single place. Um, so each of the rooms are separated out. Each room, of course, has a positive air pressure, very similar to a pharma, pharma room. So we, we need to make, because we don't use any pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, we need to make sure that we get no insects, we get no bugs, we get no, um, no dandelion, uh, you know, uh, things coming into the, the system. So everything room is filtered and clean to make sure we have a pristine environment for each of the rooms. And you go into each of the rooms and you'll see these long grow units. They're about eight feet long, three feet wide, and eight feet high. On our website, you can see pictures and videos of them. And, you, and they're just basically dense walls of vegetables. And whatever each, each grow unit will be, of course, one will be kale, another will be uh, tomatoes, another will be strawberries, and each one, of course, is, is separately managed um, and to ensure that it gets the exact nutrients it needs to maximize the taste, quality, nutritional value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have all these different rooms, and you can go into one room or another, and, and if it was a tour and you were, you know, very, very, very important person, we would take a snip of each of them. You could eat a fresh salad as you're walking along. Um, but because we're very focused on food safety. You would then you'd see people harvesting. They'd be snipping them into baskets. They would take, you know, high-tech baskets. They'd take the baskets into the central area. In the central area, you'll find a cleaning space where we have to actually wash them once again. So we follow the standard called SQF, Safe Quality Food, which is the same standard used to manage um, Cheerios and anything else in the food industry. Um, and we wash them, and then we take our, our different components and we mix them together. So there'll be a little mixing space there where we'll take up to eight components into our salad. 
and then cells will flow into a machine and you'll see them bagged and sealed and then they'll go to a, a couple other safety checks and then they'll be put cards and be ready to ship out. So you'll be walking into a complete, it's, it's more to imagine it as a farm and as a factory at the same time. And that's what you're kind of going to see. And that 15, it's 15,000 square feet, not particularly big. Each room is around 2,500 square feet. Um, not, again, very large, but small enough that we can control it, and which is very critical to our technology. And everything's very clean. And then um, you see a factory. You see people working and, you know, making food and shipping things out and dollars coming into the till. Yeah, and you mentioned that, you know, each one of these farms is growing or has the capacity to grow roughly 60 crops. You mentioned kale, lettuce, uh, I think strawberries came up, but what are some of the biggest crops that, that you're growing in there? Well, mostly, mostly packet, the things that you would find in packet salads. So they would be hurt. Like, but, but our packet salads are kind of, kind of the more exclusive ones. So typically when you walk into a, a nice restaurant, you'll have a lettuce and you'll have a kale and you'll have a few other items and you'll have a bunch of herbs in there. Um, when you walk into the store and you currently buy a retail salad, you get three or four items, and it'll be a lettuce, maybe a chopped up carrot, something like that. Um, our salads will be more like the exclusive salads you walk into when you get in a restaurant. So we'll have any of the different types of herbs that you want uh, that you could imagine. You got basil, you may have a little bit of basil in there. You might have a little arugula. Um, you have a couple of cherry tomatoes, maybe a fresh fresh pea or two in your salad. So it's kind of what we grow because we're we're really actually focusing on the finished salad product rather than just selling raw product. That's because the price of a finished salad is like a Starbucks versus buying coffee beans. And for our investors, and since you know this is really about the investors for the fund, the investors would rather get returns on a Starbucks coffee than they would get the returns on a selling raw coffee bean. Gotcha. Okay, so you're not just shipping out just the the crops to the grocery stores or other distributors or restaurants you're actually so you must have some sort of kitchen at some point in the in the facility as well where you're actually putting these salads and together and packaging them yeah so that whole conversation where i was mentioning the mixing that's actually where we're mixing or putting the eight products into a bag and then sealing the bag this is a manufacturing. You know, when you walk into a store, you see a Dole salad or you see a organic girl salad or an earthbound salad. Right, that's right. What we're, that's what we're producing out of this farm. Um, we may sell the other items, but there's no, the margins there are very, very low versus the margins on the packaged salad. This is, this is, this is all about great returns. And 85% of Americans buy packaged salads. You know, every one of your listeners probably has one sitting in there refrigerator right now i know um, i do yeah we've got, we've got a few of them probably in our refrigerator right now at home yeah yeah that's exactly it now it turns out that the food service guys the mcdonald's and all those other guys are also buying those packaged salads so they don't buy them in five ounce bags they're buying them in five pound bags and they want a custom blend so they want you know percentage certain percentage of kale certain percentage of um, arugula you know any of the other kind of lettuces that are out there you know 20 30 different types of lettuces that you can put in there um, just even basil, you know, we have purple basil, we have the regular green basil people are familiar with, and some of the other basil, so holy basil, we can plug in there. And then they say, you know, I want a certain number of uh, green peas. You know, the, the snap peas where you just bite them and eat them, you know, pull up the peas, and they're part of a salad. 
that's all what we can customize for any one of our customers. And, and of course, we're we're chasing after the the chains, the small chains, the big chains. Uh, we've talked to some of the big the big boys. Okay, gotcha. That's that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, so you mentioned in the beginning of the show that you know the main disadvantage to vertical indoor farming is the capital cost. Can you what is the capital requirement exactly? How much capital does it take to get one of these up and running? Okay, so our 50, we we do everything in fifteen thousand square foot increments um, because we want every farm to look exactly the same. So that's why I use these kind of numbers. Um, if we, I just I, I I realize that people don't always understand when I say this. So let's say say for example we buy a building that's six floors and every floor is fifteen thousand square feet. We would put six unique farms in there. So be each farm would be each floor would be a separate farm. There'd be some savings uh, in terms of people, but not in terms of technology. Um, it's a very very important point um, when you get into the details of what we do. Anyways, the technology for the farm is two million dollars, and using Baltimore as our ours our kind of starting place, we're finding the buildings are about a million dollars. So each bill each farm is without using any leverage, meaning we're not taking mortgages or any other kind of uh, uh, loans, each farm will be about a $3 million piece. And we're planning to, our fund is based on setting up three farms in Baltimore. So it's three times three, 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 and we're raising 10 million so that we hit the 90% uh, cost. So we have a little extra million dollars in there just in case. So some farms are 700, the properties we're looking at are anywhere from 750,000 to 1.25 million. So we have a little bit of play and a little extra in there if we need it. But so I, Long explanation, the physical 15000 the equipment set up, $2 million, then you price your property, which we're in Baltimore estimating a million dollars. Detroit would be higher, Washington would be higher, Philadelphia would be somewhere in the middle. Okay, I, I gotcha, gotcha. Are you always taking over an existing structure and then substantially improving it with these projects, or, or are you ever doing new construction? We, we would do new construction, but I, 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 I don't have a lot of patience. Um, why should I build up something new when I can go buy something that's already existing? So we, we just need, when we walk into an existing building, we know all we need are walls and floors. We'll just blow out everything else. We don't, we bring in our own HVAC. We don't need anything other than walls and floors. So if I can walk into a building that's already there, why would I put up walls and floors? Right. No, I gotcha. I gotcha. And, and you know, you mentioned, uh, earlier the returns that you're seeking for investors what what types of returns are you looking at typically for one of these projects okay so based on our pro well we're really doing it on the fund level so the fund we're looking at about 19.5 irr um the irr over the period of the 10 years and that's assuming very you know basic assumptions meaning that you know we sell the property property goes up two percent per year the building, you know, we sell the businesses at the exit at, you know, roughly uh, the, the, what the revenue, what the uh, of the of the farm is. Nothing fancy that way, but uh, we, we're projecting at least nineteen point five over the ten years. Good, good. That's 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 pretty strong. And and you mentioned earlier also, you know, some of the some of the jobs that your fund is creating. Can you talk a little bit more? about that, the, the number of jobs that, that each farm creates, and, and maybe you can go into more of the social and environmental impact returns that, that, you're, that you're seeing with these projects as well. 
Okay, terrific. So, so these, these to me, um, just so we're clear, you know, the, these are the things that happen just by doing good business. Um, so each farm itself is about 25 jobs. These are, you know, $15 an hour factory type jobs, but they're solid jobs. And we're working with the bank to provide my, um, education, uh, financial literacy to our employees. And the banks are going to help make sure that people with the paychecks don't have to go cash their paycheck and pay off some absorbent rate. So we're going to look after our employees. I want to work because we're working in a community that we know is a challenged community. That's number one. So each farm is 25 jobs, three farms, 75 jobs. Um, those are majority of the jobs. There'll be one or two uh, more senior jobs, uh, plant manager, um, food safety kind of trained people. Um, again, we'll look to the community for those people first and foremost, and then we'll go from there. Uh, we're looking to hire people that can walk to work because that's where we want to be. You know, the worst places are the most interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of the community level. We're going to work with the community to help us find the employees and everything else. So that's number one. Number two, of course, is we're located in the worst, again, the worst parts of the city where there's a concept of called food desert. Um, unless you're sort of socially aware of what's going on, um, many of these locations, people have to drive or take a bus a half an hour just to go to a, to a, a, a place to buy food. So that's called a food desert. There's no available food for people to eat. So that's another thing that we're creating. We'll obviously be able to sell locally at the prices we would sell to, let's say, Walmart. We'll make it available to the people in the community, you know, somehow through through the door. And then, of course, employees will be able to buy even at a greater discount. So we'll make sure that we're providing healthy, safe food. All our food is organic um, because there's no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. We, we It's easy for us to become organic. We buy only organic seeds. We only use organic uh Type zero. So we're, we're catching into that organic thing and healthy. The farms, um, traditional farms have a thing called runoff. Um, farmers need to make sure that the plants get enough nutrition, get enough of whatever, and they always overcompensate. And all that stuff goes into the runoff. It goes into the water. It goes through the soil and ends up in the, the rivers and lakes and everything nearby. And that's why you have things called algae bloom and all the other kinds of terrible things that happen by putting extra stuff into the, the into the into the environment. We don't have any of that because we just use. We only give our plants what they exactly need because we can physically control that. Um, there's a, a significant reduction in um, in the carbon because typically, let's talk Washington, Baltimore, stuff is shipped from California. So that truck that's shipping everything from California is you know, spewing out all those gases and doing all that carbon stuff that it does. Um, we don't have any of that. Our farm, we're talking to solar people, working with solar companies. Our projects are now are so leading edge, we don't even want to bring in solar at this point. But eventually, solar will be a, just a natural part of what we're doing because we do use electricity. We generate some heat. Uh, we're planning on recycling the heat, reusing the heat, giving the heat to other people, turning the heat back into electricity. A bunch of plans along that way, but they're, they're, it's leading edge. People aren't doing it very well yet, so we've kind of, that will happen, but it's just not part of our integrated story right now. Um, and those are, those are the, the big highlights of what's happening with, with what we're doing. So, the, so just to re summarize, 75 jobs, you know, $15 an hour jobs, good jobs, we're working with our bank to make sure it's financial, financial literacy, for our employees, whatever else we can do to help make our employees solid, happy. You know, I firmly believe, you know, 
it's better to train a person, make them happy, than to keep recycling employees, bring in new employees. We're working with the community for those kinds of things. Food deserts, addressing you know the food problem in the area of places where we're located, and of course the the, the impact thing. We actually did an analysis of the 17 UN SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals, and we're actually help on 16 of the 17 sustainable goals, but that's very esoteric, and I think only. <laughs> 17 people in the world care about that, but it is a bit, it is, and you're one of them. I'm one. Of, well, I care about it because I like the story. I tell the story. We, we, we um, the other big thing that we do is we use existing buildings, buildings that, you know, were built as factories and we can now reuse them because we only need to be 14 feet to the choice and typical warehouses need 30, 40 feet, uh, height clearance. We only need 14 feet, which means that we can reuse existing buildings. So we're considering partnering with people who, you know, in our fund, we have the ability to partner with people who have a building and it's not being used and they're looking for tenants and, you know, they want to find a way of, of working with us. And we're open to that. We've structured our fund to enable us to do that as well. Well, that that's great. And I, I do want to shift gears now and talk about how your fund is structured. So this might get a little bit technical, but please do get as technical as, as you want, because I think our listeners want to hear exactly what you've done here. Uh, how is your fund structured exactly? Okay. So our fund is, if you were to look at our structure chart, and we've actually published it, and it's widely available, our fund looks a lot like a traditional private equity fund, or it looks like a real estate fund, or a VC fund, um, all the same structures. So in the center of the fund, of course, is the fund itself, where people were Traditionally, you know, investors can put their money in capital gains, and that's your opportunity zone fund. The below, well, what happens is opportunity zones have a particular rule that you're not allowed to invest in other funds. So we created a sub-entity, which is owned by the fund, which allows other funds to invest their fund money. So let's say you've taken money from people and you've created a fund, and now you need a place to deploy it. So you could partner with our fund and use the traditional word co-invest with our fund in that thing, which we call just the Baltimore LLC. That that entity now owns two type other entities. It owns the property, right, as a separate entity, and then it owns the farm as an opportunity zone business, which has a tenant agreement with the building, with the property. So, okay, so that middle thing called Baltimore owns both, will own three properties and we'll own three businesses that are in those three properties that are tenants in each of those buildings. So now we've got six entities at that bottom level. Then we create this structure and then moving above it is there's a general partner, which is um, a, uh, we've created a local a general partner for Baltimore. And then that's owned by local owned salads us, which is a own, will own our, all our general partners. And then local owned salads Canada owns that higher level entity. Um, that's more our problem, our structure, but we like to be very transparent who is involved and what's happening. So back to the, the, the three, so at the very bottom of the structure, there's three business entities and three farm entities, three property entities. And the reason we created this is we were thinking a lot about the exit strategy. Like it's very nice that we're creating this thing, but how do our investors get out of it? And how do we maximize the returns for our investors at the very end? 
So we've created the three properties so that we can either spin out the properties and sell the properties to somebody else already tenanted by our farms, or we can take all the three properties and sell them to REIT or gather all our properties from all our different uh, local on sales funds and put them together into a REIT as a separate ending, and the businesses themselves can all be gathered together and done as an exit on, say, an IPO if we wanted to. You know, this is dreaming, but that's what could happen. This allows the, the build, let's say the building property shoots up in value and it's got more value than as a commercial, as a commercial installation, people want to turn into loss. The area gets hot, loss are worth a lot more money than, than the rent from a local ground sales farm. We'll just take out all our equipment from the farm, we'll move it to another location and the business continue to operate. The business as a business operates, generates income all the way along because our investors do have a tax problem in five years or seven years, depending on how they want to work it, and they need to have income from the farm to pay their tax bill along the way. And just to sort of finish the, the reason for the end of the structure, the end of the structure, when we want to sell everything off and we want to return everybody's capital and close down the fund, and we want to make sure these people don't have any capital gain, and we want to make sure that their return can be massive. So that's kind of how we structured everything along that way. And of course, we can also partner with people at the at the level of the property because our fund allows us to put a, a farm into a leased property that's owned by somebody so you know susie um property owner has a property says yeah I, i'd like to invest in your fund but you you know one of the deals side deals is that you got to set up a farm in my property that's fine as long as you know we can get a proper lease arrangement that doesn't affect anybody else but it it's to the advantage of everybody in all the owners and all the investors in the fund. Gotcha. Okay, so it's it's a rather complex fund structure. I mean, my, our structure is very interesting, and exciting. But if you talk to any other fund managers, they're crazy. This is a there's a that's what they call the two tier and the three tier structure. Ours is what's called the three tier structure. So for our listeners out there, if if you want to, if you're having a hard time kind of holding the picture in your head, you can head over to opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and I'll have a link to the flow chart of, of this structure as Zale just described it. It's a very helpful. Help me follow along while, while you were talking just now, Zale. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the the exit strategy. I think you 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 had kind of uh, talked about how you know each one of these QOZBs could be could be sold off into a REIT. Is that correct? Or can you go in a little more detail there? Okay. So there, there's six entities. Three of them are QOZBs, and three of them are properties, which are QOZBs, but they, but they physically own property. And, and, and sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but just in, in case there's a listener out there who is not sure what a QOZB is, that stands for Qualified Opportunity Zone Business. So I'm sorry, continue. So the, the business... There's a business and there's a property. That, and the property, especially with the opportunity zones, if you imagine, this is how I'm sort of seeing one possibility, is opportunity zone businesses uh, and the kind of stuff that we're doing generates income and creates wealth in the community. So, I, you know, I've, I've got 25 jobs. Well, somebody next door is going to say, well, this guy, 25 guys working there. Let me set up a little restaurant. Another guy may say, you know what, I'm going to buy the raw, raw materials and I want to set up a, a catering company. And, and income and business starts generating 
and the value of the property goes up significantly, like really significantly. And somebody says, you know what, we want to create nice condos or lofts out of these buildings. And that's what, and so the building itself says, you know, the cap rate on that building, this would be real estate investors will understand what I'm saying. The cap rate on the building will be worth more as loss than it would be than from local ground salads business as a tenant in this building. So somebody will come along and say, listen, I don't really want to buy your building from you. And I'll say, great. Well, we have a business in there. So what we'll do is we'll sell the building to the to the property guys or we and and move our business someplace else into another empty building or whatever we have to do to do with the building. The other thing that we could do is we have three buildings here. I as I've mentioned multiple times, we're going to re reproduce our fund over and over and over again. So I have three buildings in Baltimore. Let's say I have six buildings in Philadelphia. I have, you know, 20 buildings in New York. I have five buildings in Detroit. I have 10 buildings in Los Angeles. All of a sudden I can gather up all my buildings together. I sell them to a REIT, you know, a public REIT. And I, I do an exit strategy. And I, instead of returning cash to my investors, I return shares in this REIT. But it's an exit strategy that that is much greater than I'm projecting the value of that property because we have all these properties and they're all over the country and it's not a thing that's getting cash. The businesses themselves can be gathered up as a whole and and just the way you know there are public companies that own franchises. Uh, we don't use, we don't like to use the F word, but because we're our models are actually a license model. And there's a, there's a legal difference between franchises and licenses, and we're on the license side. But in the event, there are public companies that own, you know, they own 50 Burger Kings, they own 50 McDonald's, they own 50 Popeyes. We can gather, and these guys would, might be interested in buying the licenses, might be interested in buying these these licensed companies. They're revenue producing, they meet the same kind of models that they want, and they might suck up all these companies as an exit strategy. And that's how we're trying to position everything to head towards that. Because at the end of 10 years, you know, investors want their their money back, right? They're going to get income along the way, but of course they want, you know, cash in and they want to move on to some other deal. Um, so this gives them an exit strategy and it's kind of planned up. And, and because of the, these are all existing models that we can tap into and we set ourselves up in our structures to make sure that we take advantage of them. And of course, it, it may happen during the 10-year during the between now and the t- end of the 10 years, that we'll do that internally, but we have to then reuse the money in some opportunity zone. So it's a bunch of rules that we need to follow to ensure that that happens. And so, circle partner, and so this is where circle partners and BKD make sure that we that we don't you know follow all the rules and that the investors can be certain that there's a third party watching us and ensuring that you know we don't. Well, I'm not going to make a mistake purposely, but accidentally make a mistake, and they're going to ensure that 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 happens. Right, no, that third-party verification to ensure that you're in compliance with the regulations—that's that's very important for a, a, right. any any type of opportunity zone fund. Uh, right. So, how to just to back up and kind of get your big picture view now? Why do you think the vertical farms are ideally suited for opportunity zone investment specifically? And maybe you can go into how you view the opportunity zones incentive in practical terms. Okay, so. Zone funds are like if if let's if my advice to investors is if you're going to put money into an alternative investment, this is a we're in a class that's called alternative investments. The only it's alternative to the stock market. 
So people say, you put your money in the stock market or you put it into something else. So we're in that class of alternative investments. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, the, 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 essentially, you can, let's take Facebook. Everybody likes Facebook as an example, and Facebook's a great example. There's a lot of them that just match the same way. If Facebook was located in an opportunity zone, and the business was operating in physically an opportunity zone, and you put your $100,000 in when you met, uh, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg when he was, you know, a Harvard grad, and now it goes public, and you decide, you know what, I want to cash in, and your 100000 is now worth, you know, probably $500 million. Um, right now, you'd have to pay 20% on that $500 million. So you just basically be giving the federal government $100 million. If that Facebook had been located in the Opportunity Zone Fund, at the, if they existed at the time, and you put them in there, you would not be writing a check for $100 million. That $100 million would be sitting in your pocket to do whatever you wanted to do with it. So essentially, the you know this is 15% taxing, which is really nice, and you know it gives you a nice kicker, basically 3%. If ever if you if you didn't lose money, you'd make any money, you're getting 3% because you're tax right. But with the 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 tax-free advantage of the of the not paying taxes, not paying federal taxes, um, capital gains tax is is like a 20% kicker. So your your hundred thousand becomes 500 million each. It's $100 million that sits in your pocket that you can do whatever you want with. So why would any investor do any alternative investment that wasn't located in an opportunity zone? That's number one. So that's, that's kind of where like, oh, my God, this is great um, because we're long-term hold. We're generating income. We're a core business. We're, you know, we're what they call an inflation-resistant uh, business because people are always going to eat every single day. Um, so – you know, as long as you're in the you're a good business in that space, you should be resi- resistant to inflation. That's number one. Number two is, indoor vertical farms need need real estate, and we don't. Our particular technology doesn't need fancy real estate. We need cheap real estate. But the closer we are to our to our customers, the better, because we I, while we don't have to ship from California to Baltimore, we have to ship from you know part of Baltimore to Washington, which is 40 minutes. Right, so if we're clo- or the closer we are to the company, if we're, uh, closer we are to our customer, the better off we are. So therefore, opportunity zones are always in the core of a city. Uh, I mean, there are there are rural ones as well, but there are generally in the core of a city. So a great place to be, and that's where all the old factories are. You know, Detroit. Some of the Detroit fact. If you think Detroit, Baltimore. We're looking at a piece of property in, in Baltimore that was built in 1905. You know, we'll have to clean it up a bit because it's just for a bunch of things. We have to do environmental tests. But if everything is clean and good, we're reusing a building that was built in 1905. I got a great story. I'll find out the history of the story. We'll talk about the history of the story. And then, you know, you go into the local um, Whole Foods, let's say, if that was one of our customers, and say, you know, this is produced in Baltimore down the street. Can't be any fresher. And we're using this building that has this Baltimore history, you know, that goes back uh, when Baltimore was in its heyday as a manufacturing company. And then, and then on top of that, we're giving jobs to people who have trouble having jobs, right? And we can work with the community. And so it's like win, 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 win. Like, like everybody wins on this. Um, indoor vertical farming, because it's food, it's great. But any other, I mean, I hate to say it, but any other food, any other product that was being produced locally that's really value on local makes sense 
in a in a opportunity zone in the, in the kind of core where you are, especially you want to be, be close to your customers. Right. Yeah. You can you could put these structures anywhere. You could put these indoor vertical farms anywhere. You might as well put it in an opportunity zone. Might as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're uh, of course our business model is you know we'll do it outside an opportunity zone. Like you know I. We're looking at expanding into, you know, Europe and every other place and they know opportunity zones. But opportunity zones, if I'm doing it in the United States, why wouldn't I do it in an opportunity zone? Like like anybody who invested in me and I was outside an opportunity zone and they were an investor or on my board of directors, I'd have to answer for that. I'd have to say, like, you know, I have to explain that and I'd have to have a really good financial reason not to do it. And there probably is no good financial reason not to do it. Well, maybe I get cheap rent. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Or, or, or I'm placed in my client, or you know, Walmart comes and says, "I want you to put your farm inside my my distribution center." All right, there, there, there has there has to be a compelling reason, and in some some outlying cases, there may be. I got you, Zale. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion, fascinating speaking with you as always. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and local grown salads? Okay, so so the you can obviously go to our website, localgrownsalads.com, with an S. You can search for me, LinkedIn. Um, I'm posting all the time. There's lots of links there. You can connect up to me there. Uh, you can send me an email, dale at localgrownsalads.com. Uh, it's probably the simplest and easiest places to find us. Um, I, I like LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you connect up with me, send me an invite, and we connect up. I have some 30,000 connections on LinkedIn, so you can join a big a big environment, and we can chat and discuss and uh, connect up. And of course, if you're interested in the fund, we're very much interested, and in, we'll set up a, a Zoom call and go through our deck and and go through our structure very carefully, so you can understand like what he's talking about. Well, one last thing is we've also created a virtual data room where we have our private placement memorandum and all our other documents available to qualified investors to see. Perfect. Perfect, Zale. Thank you. And for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Zale and I discussed on today's show. Zale, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That was great. Very, very enjoyable. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.